0: I'd like to welcome everybody to season three of Check Your Shelf. We've got the Orwellian double feature. We're gonna start it off with Animal Farm and then follow it up with 1984, a back-to-back set of certified heaters. In this season, we're gonna discuss how absolute power can completely and totally destroy a man. We're gonna discuss how the bourgeois class always wants to keep down the working class. And we're gonna discuss why the government, the state, the man does not care about you. This book was banned in the United States for being pro-communism. This book was banned in the United Arab Emirates in 2012 for being un-Islamic. Printers in the UK were discouraged from printing it in order to not emblazon the USSR. But it's not banned here. Not on Check Your Shelf. Because that's what we do. We read what they don't want us to read. And it's better that way. So I'm going to have to ask you to go check your shelf. check your shelf. yep I already know what you're thinking the first half of this season was a little bit childish a little bit simple and um, maybe a little too on the nose of what uh, these sort of uh, I don't even know what it's so hard to I don't want to keep calling because every time I say socialism and communism you know it just it paints this weird uh, like negative or like there's this real almost derogatory right like but i don't know it's not it's as we can see in the last the last book that we read it was not um the system that was wrong it was the people who rose to power in that system and kept manipulating the system to their gain right so this book's a little bit more um since it's an actual novel it's a little more um descriptive, you know, there's a little bit more nuance, um, it's a lot more metaphors, um, there's a lot more character development, um, it's a lot less about communism per se, and it's more just about um, the effects of hyper-capitalism and um, post-modernism and things like that, so you know, the surveillance state, the police state, um, what would happen if government got uh, complete and total overreach um in a in a more modern society as opposed to on a silly little farm right um but yeah i haven't read this um since uh you yeah, definitely did, haven't read it as an adult it was in high school and i'm not even 100 percent sure i finished it um so but yeah let's go ahead and dive into this shit together this is 1984 uh we're gonna start right at the beginning chapter one and if you don't have the book man feel free to hop on the youtube subscribe do all that dumb shit that these influencers tell you to do and uh yeah that way you can read along because we got the pdf brought up on on screen for you You can read along if you just watch the video if you don't feel like watch or reading you know or you know looking at my beautiful face you can just uh listen along on spotify or any other uh platform that you get your podcast from so how at you, boy we're gonna dive right into this mask f- chapter one 1984 baby Blow. i'm having a hard time not um damn charlie you just jumped heavy as hell girl Having a hard time not trying to sing this um fucking title of this book like that Bowling for Soup song. Nineteen, nineteen, it's nineteen eighty four. Might have to actually, I'm sure that exists, right? Somebody has to have made that parody before. Anyway, chapter one, baby, let's go. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking thirteen. Winston Smith. His chin, nuzzled into his breast in an effort to escape the vile wind, slipped quickly through the glass doors of Victory Mansions, though not quickly enough to prevent a swirl of gritty dust from entering along with him. The hallway smelt of boiled cabbage and old rag mats. The one end of it had a colored poster. Look at that you. Look at that you sitting in colored. Damn, these damn British folks. At one, of it, at one end of it, a colored poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. It, it depicted simply an enormous face, more than a meter wide, the face of a man about 45, with a heavy black mustache and ruggedly handsome features. Winston made for the stairs. It was no use trying the lift, even at the best of times it was seldom working, and at present the electric current was cut off during daylight hours so already we're kind of um we're kind of getting a um a picture of how bleak it is um in this setting right so even at the best of times the lift was seldom working and right now the electric current is cut off during daytime so so what we see with that is that um you know with this kind of complete government control um what can happen is that there's they'll just decide to turn your electricity the entire city's electricity off um you know we were trying to save money here and we're trying to maximize profits or whatever have you um now there's just no electricity during the day so they're kind of setting the precedent letting you know i'm i'm already kind of picturing like a um um a cyberpunk 2077 kind of backdrop but uh like dirtier and a little bit um um more um more dark and uh almost like steampunk in a way instead of so like tron and futuristic that's kind of what i'm picturing it was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week so the economy drive like i love i already love some of the like vocabulary Oh yes, uh, this is just part of the economy drive, you know, we're, we're, we're fundraising, you know, we got the hate week coming up. Um, but yeah, it was part of the economy drive in preparation for hate week. The flat was seven flights up, and Winston, who was 39 and had a varicose ulcer above his right ankle, went slowly, resting several times on the way. On each landing opposite the lift shaft, the poster with the enormous face gazed from the wall. It was one of those pictures which are which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about. Follow you up. It was one of those pictures which are so contrived that the eyes follow you about when you move. Big brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. Big brother is watching you. I think I got that one right here. You see this little face right here? Let me get, get rid of the book real quick. See, if you're not watching along, you don't get to see these posters and this propaganda I got set up. So I'm guessing it's this picture right here. That guy kind of looks a little bit like Hitler with the stash, but a lot, lot more stern. And Oh, look at this fucking 70s police officer right here. He's usually tucked behind the book. I don't see him much. Anyway. Big Brother is watching you, the caption beneath it ran. And inside the flat, a fruity voice was reading out a list of figures, which had something to do with the production of pig iron. The voice came from an oblong metal plaque, like a dulled mirror, which formed part of the surface of the right-hand wall. Winston turned a switch, and the voice sank somewhat, though the words were still distinguishable. The instrument, the telescreen it was called, could be dimmed, but there was no way of shutting it off completely. So we saw that in an episode of um, Black Mirror too, right? So like the dude in Thirty Four Thousand Merits or whatever the fuck it was called, um, you know, just kind of constantly surrounded and um, you know being forced to watch these sort of things. And that in that in that show it was advertisements, but here it's propaganda. It seems to be propaganda. Um, reading out a list of figures, production, pig iron. Yes, I mean it's just like. All right, guys, our numbers are good. Got to keep that stuff going. Make sure you work hard. Big Brother's watching you. Uh, But yeah, Uh, there was no way of shutting it off completely. He moved over to the window, a smallish, frail figure, the meagerness of his body merely emphasized by the blue overalls, which were the uniform of the party. His hair was his hair was very fair. His face very naturally sanguine his skin roughened by coarse soap and blunt razor blades in the cold winter that had just ended. Outside, even though even through the shut windowpane, the world looked cold. Down in the street, little eddies of wind were whirling dust and torn paper into spirals, and though the sun was shining and the sky a harsh blue, there seemed to be no color in anything, except the posters that were plastered everywhere. I love how it's already doing a really good job at um, displaying the bleakness despite conditions being somewhat normal. The black mustachioed face gazed down from every commanding corner. There was one on the house front immediately opposite. Big Brother is watching you, the caption said, while the dark eyes looked deep into Winston's own. Down at street level, another poster, torn at one corner, flapped fitfully in the wind, alternately covering and uncovering the single word INGSOC. IngSOC. I don't know if that's supposed to be a word, bro. I mean, I'm, I'm 99% sure it's a fucking acronym. The IGSOC is this one. It's, it's just a lot easier to say that. I'm going to fuck that in up. The IGSOC. In the far distance, a helicopter skimmed down between the roofs, hovered for an instant like a blue bottle, and darted away again with a curving flight. It was the police patrol, snooping into people's windows. The patrols did not matter, however. Only the thought police mattered. Wanted to let that one ring in, let that sink in for a second. The thought police? Yikes. Behind Winston's back, the voice from the telescreen was still babbling away about pig iron and the over-fulfillment of the ninth, three-year plan. The telescreen received and transmitted simultaneously. Any sound that Winston made above the level of a very low whisper would be picked up by it. Moreover, so long as he remained within the field of vision which the metal plaque commanded, he could be seen as well as heard. There was of course no way of knowing whether you were being watched at any given moment, how often or on what system. The thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. Oh, wait, I think I need to re-inflict that. How often or on what system the thought police plugged in on any individual wire was guesswork. It was even conceivable that they watched everybody all the time. But at any rate, they could plug in your wire whenever they wanted to you had to live did live from habit that became instinct in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard and except in darkness every movement scrutinized winston kept his back turned to the telescreen it was safer though as he well knew even a back can be revealing a kilometer away the ministry of truth his place of work towered vast and white above the grimy landscape. This, he thought with a sort of vague distaste, this was London, chief city of Airstrip One, itself the third most populous of the provinces of Oceania. He tried to squeeze out some childhood memory that should tell him whether London had always been like this, oh man that's like that um that's like the animal farm shit man they're trying to they can't really access their memories because of all this stuff that they're being like force-fed right he tried to squeeze out some childhood memory that should tell him whether london has always been quite like this were there always these vistas were there always these vistas of rotting 19th century houses their sides shored up with balks of timber their windows patched with cardboard and their roofs with corrugated iron, their crazy garden walls sagging in all directions, and the bombed sites where the plaster dust swirled in the air and the willow herbs straggled over the the heaps of rubble, and the places where the bombs had cleared a larger patch and there had sprung up sordid colonies of wooden dwellings like chicken houses. But it was no use. He could not remember. Nothing remained of his childhood except a series of bright-lit tableau, occurring against no background and mostly unintelligible. The Ministry of Truth. Mini-true in Newspeak. Newspeak was the official language of Oceania. For, an account, for account of its structure and etymology, see appendix. I wonder if there's an appendix here, if that's just a funny little, like, meta-joke about the book. Um... The Ministry of Truth was startlingly different from any other object in sight. It was an enormous pyramidal structure of glittering white concrete soaring up terrace after terrace, 300 meters into the air. From where Winston stood, it was just possible to read, picked out on its white face and elegant lettering, the three slogans of the party. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. The Ministry of Truth contained, it was said, 3,000 rooms above ground level and corresponding ramifications below. Scattered about London, there were just three other buildings of similar appearance and size. So completely did they dwarf the surrounding architecture that from the roof of Victory mansions, you could see all four of them simultaneously scattered about three other buildings of similar appearance and size okay so there's four big ass um there's four big ass uh, pyramids apparently in the ministry of truth and from the roof of victory mansions you can see them all okay interesting they were the homes of the four ministries between which the entire apparatus of government was divided the ministry of truth which concerned itself with news entertainment education and the fine arts the ministry—that's pretty interesting. This is this is good. The ministry of peace, which concerned itself with war; the ministry of love, which maintained law and order; the ministry of plenty, which was responsible for economic affairs. Their names in newspeak: mini true, mini packs, mini love, and mini plenty. So that's fun. That's that's fun. So like so again, what what we have to pay attention to a little bit here is like um make the parallels with what we see in America. You know, think about some of the um, some of the names of the bills that they try to pass, and they sneak in all kind of crazy things like um, what was it, the America First Act, and um, shit like that, the Build Back Better Plan, and all this shit, right? Like they all sound so positive and and fun, but when you look at like the Ministry of Truth, you don't want truth and entertainment all the time, you know what I'm saying? And if you want truth and education, you have to make sure that whoever is giving that out is not going to be able to manipulate or dilute what the truth actually is and (laughs) when you look at the next one the ministry of peace which is concerned with war I mean it's kind of that's that's the one that's really nailing down the metaphor for you right the ministry of love was the really frightening one there were no windows in it at all Winston had never been inside the ministry of love nor within a half a kilometer of it it was a place impossible to enter except on official business. And then, only by penetrating through a maze of barbed wire entanglements, steel doors, and hidden machine gun nests. Even the streets leading up to its outer barriers were roamed by gorilla-faced guards in black uniforms, armed with jointed truncheons. Winston turned round abruptly. He had set his features into the expression of quiet optimism, which it was advisable to wear when facing the telescreen. He crossed the room into the tiny kitchen. I thought that was gonna be a much longer sentence. Did you hear how I left that thing wide open for more? He crossed the room into the tiny kitchen. By leaving the ministry at this time of day, he had sacrificed his lunch in the canteen and he was aware that there was no food in the kitchen except a hunk of dark colored bread, which had got to be saved for tomorrow's breakfast. He took down from the shelf a bottle of colorless liquid with a plain white label marked Victory Gin. It gave off a sickly, oily smell as of Chinese rice spirit. Winston poured out nearly a teacupful, nerved himself for a shock, and gulped it down like a dose of medicine. Instantly his face turned scarlet and the water ran out of his eyes. The stuff was like nitric acid. And moreover, in swallowing it, one had the sensation of being hit on the back of the head with a rubber club. The next moment, however, the burning in his belly died down and the world began to look more cheerful. He took a cigarette from a crumpled packet marked Victory Cigarettes and incautiously held it upright, whereupon the tobacco fell out onto the floor. Wait, what? It crumpled the... So he took his cigarettes out, incautiously held it upright. Doesn't upright, wouldn't that mean you're holding it fucking the tobacco up so it doesn't fall out? Am I dumb? Whereupon the tobacco fell out onto the floor. With the next, he was more successful. He went back to the living room and sat down at a small table that stood to the left of the telescreen. From the table drawer, he took out a pen holder, a bottle of ink, and a thick, quarto-sized blank book with a red back and a marbled cover. For some reason, the telescreen in the living room was in an unusual position. Instead of being placed as was normal in the end wall, where it could command the whole room, it was in the longer wall opposite the window. To one side of it, there was a shallow alcove in which Winston was now sitting and which, when the flats were built, had probably been intended to hold bookshelves. By sitting in the alcove and keeping well back, Winston was able to remain outside the range of the telescreen so far as sight went. He could be heard, of course, but so long as he stayed in his present position, he could not be seen. It was partly the unusual geography of the room that had suggested to him the thing that he was now about to do. But it had also been suggested by the book he had just taken out of the drawer. It was a peculiar, Peculiarly... That's a really hard word to say, huh? It was a peculiar, Dude, I am intentionally trying to say it now and I'm having trouble. Y'all try saying that out loud real quick. It was a peculiarly... Peculiarly, It was peculiarly beautiful. Its smooth and creamy paper, a little yellowed by age, was of a kind that had not been manufactured for at least forty years past. He could guess, however, that the book was much older than that. He had seen it lying in the window of a frowzy little junk shop in a slummy quarter of the town. Just what quarter he did not now remember and had been stricken immediately by an overwhelming desire to possess it. Party members were supposed not to go into ordinary shops, dealing in the free market it was called, but the rule was not strictly kept, because there were various things such as shoelaces and razor blades, which it was impossible to get hold of in any other way. He had given a quick glance up and down the street, and then slipped inside and bought the book for $2.50. At the time, he was not conscious of wanting it for any particular purpose. He had carried it guiltily home in his briefcase. Even with nothing written in it, it was a compromising possession. The thing that he was about to do was to open a diary. This was not illegal nothing was illegal since there were no longer any laws but if detected it was reasonably certain that it would be punishable by death or at least by 25 years in a forced labor camp winston fitted a nib into the pen holder and sucked it to get the grease off the pen was an archaic instrument seldom used even for signatures and he had he had procured one furtively and with some difficulty simply because of a feeling that the beautiful, creamy paper deserved to be written on with a real nib instead of being scratched with an ink pencil. So, <clears throat> let's see, Dr. Goog, can you can you pop out of here for a second? Oh yeah, hey buddy, nice to see you today. What can I look up for you? Well, Dr. Goog, I was just curious, What the f- what year was 1984 written? Oh, well, that's a great question. Let's Google it. Sorry, I was just doing all that while I fucking brought up the right thing on my, for the, in Streamlabs. 1984 was written in 1949. So, in the 50s, let's see. Popular actors in 1949. Let's see if we recognize any of these names. Okay, yeah, we got a couple. So, we got uh, Abbott and Costello. We got John Wayne, Bing Crosby, and Bob Hope um in the 19 in 1949 so just to give you you know a little bit of a peek into the celebrities and things at the time um what they thought was going to be super duper futuristic uh, was going to be an ink pencil right so um the pen was an archaic instrument seldom used even for signatures but the feeling that it caused on the beautiful creamy paper right so like what they're doing is he's kind of putting together this sort of um dreamy romantic um description of uh nostalgia right is what i'm kind of getting at like he's like he desires so much to be out of this like dystopian piece of trash society that he's in now he's just like i don't even know why i wanted it i just needed it it's so beautiful and the, the feeling of it is so i need to go back type shit right love that love that actually he was not used to writing by hand Apart from very short notes, it was usual to dictate everything into the speak right, which was of course impossible for his present purpose. He dipped the pen into the ink and then faltered for just a second. A tremor had gone through his bowels. To mark the paper was the decisive act. In small clumsy letters he wrote, April 4th, 1984. He sat back. A sense of complete helplessness had descended upon him. Descended upon him. To begin with, he did not know that with any certainty that this was 1984. It must be around that date, since he was fairly sure that his age was 39. And he believed that he had been born in 44 or 45, but it was never possible nowadays to pin down any date within a year or two. For whom? It suddenly occurred for him to wonder for whom it suddenly occurred for him to wonder who is he writing this diary for for the future for the unborn his mind hovered for a moment round the doubtful date on the page and then fetched up with a bump against the newspeak the newspeak word doublethink so newspeak again that's like the the way that they all talk here so the new speak word doublethink for the first time the magnitude of what he had undertaken came home to him how could you communicate with the future it was of its nature impossible either the future would resemble the present in which case it would not listen to him or it would be it would be different from it and his predicament would be meaningless yikes so do you think? Do you think maybe that's just um, something that um, the mechanics of the society he's living in has made him feel, or do you think that do you think that holds some truth to it? Um, how could you communicate with the future? Either the future would resemble the present, in which case it would not listen to him, or it would be different from the present, and the predicament would be meaningless. So I actually, I actually would like to maybe even make a parallel there to um, what the Buddha says about giving people advice. I can't give you advice. I can, the only advice I could give you would come from a meaningless point of view, which is my own. You, you don't need advice from my point of view because that's only going to help me and what happened with me and my decisions and my lifestyle. If I give you advice, you have another layer of illusion that you have to sift through in order to find the real meaning in it. So it's better to not give advice most of the time. It can only, it can lead to more confusion. Mm-mm-mm. Does that mean we shouldn't try though? Hmm. I don't know, fun, fun to think about, hmm? Hmm, don't you think? Don't you think, don't you know? For some time, he sat gazing stupidly at the paper. The telescreen had changed over to strident military music. It was curious that he seemed not merely to have lost the power of expressing himself, but even to have forgotten what it was that he had originally intended to say. For weeks past, he had been making ready for this moment, and it had never crossed his mind that anything would be needed except courage. The actual writing would be easy. All he had to do was transfer to paper the interminable restless monologue that had been running inside his head literally for years. At this moment, however, even the monologue had dried up. Moreover, his varicose ulcer had begun itching unbearably. He dared not scratch it because if he did so, it always became inflamed. The seconds were ticking by. He was conscious of nothing except the blankness of the page in front of him, the itching of the skin above his ankle, the blaring of the music, and a slight booziness caused by the gin. Suddenly he began writing in sheer panic, only imperfectly aware of what he was setting down. His small, excuse me, His small but childish handwriting straggled up and down the page, shedding first its capital letters and finally even its full stops. April 4th, 1984 Last Night to the Flicks All war films One very good one of a ship full of refugees being bombed somewhere in the Mediterranean. Audience much amused by shots of a great huge fat man trying to swim away with a helicopter after him. First you saw him wallowing along in the water like a porpoise. Then you saw him through the helicopter's gun sights. Then he was full of holes, and the sea round him turned pink, and he sank as suddenly as though the holes had let in the water. Audience shouting with laughter when he sank then you saw a lifeboat full of children with a helicopter hovering over it. There was a middle-aged woman, might have been a Jewess, sitting up in the bow with a little boy about three years old in her arms, little boy screaming with fright and hiding his head between her breasts as if he was trying to burrow right into her, and the woman putting her arms around him and comforting him, although she was blue with fright herself all the time covering him up as much as possible as if she thought her arms could keep the bullets off him. Then the helicopter planted a 20-kilo bomb in among them. Terrific flash and the boat went all to matchwood. Then there was a wonderful shot of a child's arm going up, 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 right up into the air. A helicopter with a camera in its nose must have followed it up, followed it up, and there was a lot of applause from the party seats but a woman down in the prole part of the house suddenly started kicking up a fuss and shouting they didn't otter what and shouting they didn't otter uh, uh, what is that word after Dr. Goog, we need you. Oh, you you need me again so soon. I was just about to take my break. Take your break? You didn't do anything. Oh, I'm so sorry. I work so hard. All I'm doing is reading a book. Shut up, Dr. Goog. Tell me what otter is, please. Oh, I didn't copy and paste it, I guess. Definition of otter. Ought to. Also otter. Oh, also apparently someone born. Apparently, I'm an otter. Someone born between 1985 and 1995. Well, I guess. Um, Sila the otter. Anyway. And they 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 shouldn't have showed it not in front of the kids. Is basically what they're saying. That's what I've deduced from this 1940s British slang. Um... So some lady started kicking up a fuss and saying you shouldn't have showed this in front of kids. They didn't. They, they didn't. It. What the fuck? I hate this book so much already. Shouldn't have showed it in front of kids. It ain't right. Not in front of kids. It ain't. It ain't right. Not in front of kids. It ain't. They didn't. It ain't. Right in front of kids. It ain't. Until the police turned her, turned her out. I don't suppose anything happened to her. Nobody cares what the proles say. Typical prole reaction. They never. So he's obviously not great at writing. This is, I mean, he clearly, that was very clearly described before the the paragraph was written. Um, I wasn't prepared for that, and it was a struggle, but I'm glad we made it. We're all here, we're all, we're all alive. It turns out my fucking microphone has not been recording this whole fucking time. Good thing I've got it in Ableton, but it's going to be hard to line up. That's rude. I shouldn't have cursed. I apologize. Don't tell my mom. All right. Winston stopped writing partly because he was suffering from cramp. He did not know what had made him pour out this stream of rubbish, but the curious thing was that while he was doing so, a totally different memory had clarified itself in his mind to the point where he almost felt equal to writing it down. It was, he now realized because of this other incident, that he had suddenly decided to come home and begin the diary today. It had happened that morning at the ministry, if anything so nebulous could be said to have happened. It was nearly 1100. I'm gonna guess that's the time, 1100 hours. It was nearly 1100 and in the records department where Winston worked, they were dragging the chairs out of the cubicles and grouping them in the center of the hall opposite the big telescreen in preparation for the two minutes hate Winston was just taking his place in one of the middle rows when two people whom he knew by sight but had never spoken to came unexpectedly into the room. One of them was a girl whom he often passed in the corridors. He did not know her name, but he knew that she worked in the fiction department. Presumably, presumably, I be mumbling bruh, presumably, since he had sometimes seen her with oily hands and carrying a spanner. She had some mechanical job on one of the novel writing machines. Ooh, novel writing machines. I wonder if that's just a typewriter or a big, you know, malevolent robot that's just like out here churning out propaganda, you know? Um, She was a bold looking girl of about 27 with thick hair, a freckled face, and swift athletic movements. A narrow, scarlet sash, emblem of the junior anti-sex league, yikes, was wound several times around the waist of her overalls. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want to be a part of the anti-sex league, just wear overalls. That makes sense. Um, just tight. Okay. So, uh, narrow sash wound several times around the waist of her overalls, just tightly enough to bring out the shapeliness of her hips. Winston had disliked her from the very first moment of seeing her. He knew the reason. It was because of the atmosphere of hockey fields and cold baths and community hikes and general clean-mindedness which she managed to carry around with her. He disliked nearly all women, and especially the young and pretty ones. It was always the women, and above all the young ones, who were the most bigoted adherents of the party. Adherents? Bigoted adherents. adherents. Fuck it. Who cares? You know what I'm saying. The bigoted, the most bigoted adherents of the party. The swallowers of slogans, the amateur spies and nosers out of orthodoxy. Of unorthodoxy? Yeah, of unorthodoxy. Nosers out. We're going to nose out all this unorthodoxy. But this particular girl gave him the impression of being more dangerous than most. Once, when they passed in the corridor, she gave him a quick, sidelong glance, which seemed to pierce right into him, and for a moment had filled him with black terror. Hey, why has it gotta be black terror? Shut up. The idea had even crossed his mind that she might be an agent of the thought police. That, it was true, was very unlikely. How do you, why would you write that? So basically that sentence is saying that even though it, he thought it was true was very unlikely. I don't know why he would write it like that. That's crazy. <laughs> I hate British authors. Still he continued to feel a peculiar uneasiness which had fear mixed up in it as well as hostility anytime she was near him. The other person was a man named O'Brien, a member of the inner party and holder of some post so important and remote that Winston had only a dim idea of its nature. It was a talk show, he's a talk show, all right, anyway. Um, A momentary hush passed over the group of people round the chairs as they saw the black overalls of an inner party member approaching. O'Brien was a large, burly man with a thick neck and a coarse, humorous, brutal face. In spite of his formidable appearance, he had a certain charm of manner. He had a trick of resettling his spectacles on his nose which was curiously disarming in some indefinable way curiously civilized it was a gesture which if anyone had still thought in such terms might have recalled an 18th century nobleman offering his snuff box winston had seen o'brien perhaps a dozen times in almost as many years he felt deeply drawn to him and not solely because he was intrigued by the contrast between O'Brien's urbane manner and his prize-fighter physique. Much more, it was because of his secretly held belief, or perhaps not even a belief, merely a hope, that O'Brien's political orthodoxy was not perfect. Something in his face suggested it irresistibly. And again, perhaps it was not even unorthodoxy that was written in his face, but simply intelligence. But at any rate, he had the appearance of being a person that you could talk to if somehow you could cheat the telescreen and get him alone. Winston had never made the smallest effort to verify this guess. Indeed, there was no way of doing so. I wonder, I don't know. Cause in my brain now I'm just like, well, Winston now Winston's almost like um he, like getting obsessive when he when a girl finally talks to him and he's like, Oh my god, a girl likes me, I have to marry her now. Like it's just like you want somebody to be able to cheat the telescreen, and so you're kind of hoping to see that in them. But the reason why I was hesitant to say that is because the first bitch that he introduced with the thing around her waist, or the whatever, the sash around her waist, he was very kind of paranoid about her. So maybe these are just Maybe he's just imparting two aspects of his personality onto these people. I don't know. I don't know. By the way, this book is about three times as long as Animal Farm, so we'll probably be locked in for a good 15 or 16 episodes. So buckle up. Okay. At this moment... O'Brien glanced at his wristwatch, saw that it was nearly eleven hundred, and evidently decided to stay in the records department until the two minutes' hate was over. Wait. I wonder if the records department is just really close to where this was being held, and he just didn't want to come. Cause it weren't they? Isn't that why they were? They were all here joining. For, I'm not going to go find it. Um, They were all joining because the two minutes hate was about to take place. Anyway, he took a chair in the same row as Winston, a couple of places away. A small, sandy-haired woman who worked in the next cubicle to Winston was between them. The girl with dark hair was sitting immediately behind. The next moment, a hideous, grinding speech as of some monstrous machine running without oil. Do they say, as of, in Britain? Cause shouldn't it be like, as if? A hideous grinding speech, as if some monstrous machine running without oil, burst from the big telescreen at the end of the room. It was a noise that set one's teeth on edge and bristled the hair at the back of one's neck. The hate had started. As usual, the face of Emmanuel Goldstein, the enemy of the people, had flashed onto the screen. There were hisses here and there among the audience. The little sandy-haired woman gave a squeak of mingled fear and disgust. Goldstein was the renegade and backslider who once long ago, how long ago, nobody quite remembered, but once long ago had been one of the leading figures of the party, almost on a level with big brother himself and then had had engaged in counter-revolutionary activities, had been condemned to death, and had mysteriously escaped and disappeared. So I'm not trying to say that these are um, equal parallels, but maybe just to kind of compare it to what we just read. Um, Goldstein might be Snowball, and Big Brother might be Napoleon, um, just to kind of help... Um, um, gauge where these two kinds of people because uh, Goldstein I think uh, even with just a tiny little nod to this stuff in, par- in uh, parentheses here once long ago how long ago nobody quite remembered had been on one, of the, had been a leading figure almost on a level with Big Brother but he was you know doing some counter revolutionary stuff and then you know we had to kill him but then he escaped so I mean that's basically Snowball so I don't know just just you know, brain, brain running, no big deal. Just, just what I'm thinking. I'm not trying to tell you how to think. I wouldn't, wouldn't do that. The programs of the two minutes hate varied from day to day, but there was none in which Goldstein was not the principal figure. He was the primal traitor, the earliest defiler of the party's purity All subsequent crimes against the party, all treacheries, acts of sabotage, heresies, deviations, all sprang directly out of his teaching. Somewhere or other, he was still alive and hatching his conspiracies, perhaps somewhere beyond the sea. Under the protection of his foreign paymasters, perhaps even, so it was occasionally rumored, in some hiding place in Oceania itself. Winston's diaphragm was constricted. He could never see the face of Goldstein without a painful mixture of emotions. It was a lean Jewish face with a great fuzzy aureole of white hair. Aureole, aureole, never heard that word before either. Hey, Dr. Google. Hey, Dr. Google. I said "Hey, Dr. Go. About to bring up some pictures of nipples, huh? A circle of light or brightness surrounding something like a halo, okay. Thanks Dr. Goo Goo shut up. A fuzzy halo of white hair and a small, goatee beard. A clever face, and yet somehow inherently despicable with a kind of senile silliness in the long thin nose near the end of which a pair of spectacles was perched. It resembled the face of a sheep and the voice too had a sheep-like quality. Goldstein was delivering his usual venomous attack upon the doctrines of the party. An attack so exaggerated and perverse that a child should have been able to see through it and yet just plausible enough To fill one with an alarmed feeling that other people less level-headed than oneself might be taken in by it so Again, we got another another good pair. a good little uh, Slot fuck me a good little section here that um, Selection and section is what I was trying to say and that was both just a little tougher than I wanted it to Uh oh We see a little bit of the green screen edge. No Immersion Sorry, if you want to see what that was all about, go follow me on YouTube, blah 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 blah. Um, so while Goldstein, the the guy in question here, the the um the enemy of the party, an attack so exaggerated and perverse that a child should have been able to see through it. But just plausible enough to fill one with an alarmed feeling that other people less level-headed than me might be taken in by it. So what they're again, what they're doing here is it's like the whole, um, um, like pitting of society against each other, like, um, uh, the foreigners are coming in to take your jobs, or, um, you know, the, um, uh, black people are inherently more dangerous, you know, just so like, like that, that's clearly not true, but then you're you're just you, you start to you start to question yourself and and the um the um competency of of society and your and your peers and those around you and you're like oh if other other people might believe that so now you're kind of trying to you're you're forcing yourself into a different a different sort of frame of mind and it's just a lot easier to kind of um, conquer people who are, are too busy worried about other enemies like you're not you're not worried about big brother because uh, Big Brother's telling you that Goldstein is doing all these things. You know what I'm saying? I, I think you get the idea where I'm going. It's a little com- more convoluted than I wanted it to be when I started, but I'm pretty sure you get the idea. Um, because a child should have been able to see through that. It's very clearly... Anyway. He was abusing Big Brother. He was denouncing the dictatorship of the party. He was demanding the immediate conclusion of peace with Eurasia. He was advocating freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought. He was crying hysterically that the revolution had been betrayed. And all this in rapid polysyllabic speech, which was a sort of parody of the habitual style of the orators of the party, and even contained newspeak words. More newspeak words, indeed, than any party member would normally use in real life. And all the while, lest one should be in any doubt as to the reality which Goldstein's specious claptrap covered, behind his head on the telescreen there marched the endless columns of the Eurasian army, row after row of solid-looking men with expression, expressionless Asiatic faces, who swam up to the surface of the screen and vanished to be replaced by others exactly similar the dull, rhythmic tramp of the soldier's boots formed on the background to Goldstein's bleeding voice. So again, we're just, it's, uh, it's so fun. It actually is, I lo- I, I'm, I'm already falling in love with this book a little bit too. Um, so he was abusing Big Brother and denouncing the dictatorship of the party. He wanted, so this is Goldstein. Goldstein wanted freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of thought because the revolution had been betrayed. So you remember what happened in Animal Farm, right? It all started as this revolution that was, you know, supposed to be, you know, very for the people. And it was taken over by power-hungry dictators who manipulated the system and were able to use it against the um, idealistic um, masses, Right. And then all this in rapid polysyllabic speech which was a sort of parody of the habitual style of the orators of the party so i'm not sure exactly if that because parody has to come from a, a sort of place of realism so are they trying to say that the orators of the party which would be like you know the higher ups and the speakers of the party um they speak polysyllabically polysyllabically that's a fun word to say say that one as opposed to peculiarly try polysyllabically that one's fun as fuck to say um and even contained new speak words which are the one the words that are like kind of combined together so i'm not 100 percent sure what they're trying to say here but uh what they're i think what it is is they're just trying to say that he was talking in such a way that made him stand out as abnormal um so squeaky wheel gets the grease so to speak but that's not this is a in a bad way because usually you want the grease this guy got some hot tar anyway and then oh yeah yeah nice imagery here so you know he wanted goldstein's talking about you know we should try to find some sort of peace between us and eurasia um so we can stop this military shit. Try to dictate immediate conclusion of peace with Eurasia, but they're like, "Oh, we can't do that. Look at all these. Look at all these fucking. Look at all these terrorists. You know, they could bomb us any minute now. What do you want? Another 9/11? You dumb bitch. Get out of here. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just. It, it's all. I mean, it's all. It's all just propaganda. It's all the same shit. We can't. We can't trust any of the stuff that we see. Before the hate. Okay. So to the dull rhythmic tramp. Uh, formed the background to Goldstein's bleeding voice. So they're making Goldstein out to be a sheep and they're trying to lessen his character, all while putting the fear of the um, Eurasian, uh, the Asiatic faces that make up the Eurasian army. Before the hate had proceeded for 30 seconds, uncontrollable exclamations of rage were breaking out from half the people in the room. The self-satisfied, sheep-like face on the screen and the terrifying power of the Eurasian army behind it were too much to be borne. Besides, the sight or even the thought of Goldstein produced fear and anger automatically. He was an object of hatred more constant than either Eurasia or East Asia. Even when Oceania was at war with one of these powers, it was generally at peace with the other. Are these the two other? Are these the two farms from Animal Farm? The Pilkington and the fucking other one? I'm just kidding. That was that was mostly a joke, but I'm just wondering if Orwell is incapable of writing anything a little bit more complex. I don't know why I said that. This book's incredibly complex, from what I remember. Anyway, um, but what was strange was that although Goldstein was hated and despised by everybody. Although every day, and a thousand times a day, on platforms, on the telescreen, in newspapers, in books, his theories were refuted, smashed, ridiculed, held up to the general gaze for the pitiful rubbish that they were. In spite of all this, his influence never seemed to grow less. Always, there were fresh dupes waiting to be seduced by him. A day never passed when spies and saboteurs acting under his directions were not unmasked by the thought police. He was the commander of a vast, shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to the overthrow of the state. The Brotherhood, its name was supposed to be. Hmm. Ooh, I like that. There's no brotherhood in the state. In the controlling classes, in the bourgeois class, there is no brotherhood. A shark will soon enough eat eat its brother if it smells enough blood. Like, I love that. There were also whispered stories of a terrible book, a compendium of all the heresies of which Goldstein was the author and which circulated clandestinely here and there. It was a book without a title. People referred to it if at all simply as the book. But no one knew of such things only through vague rumors. Neither the brotherhood nor the book was a subject that any ordinary party or any ordinary party member would mention if there was a way of avoiding it. In its second minute, the hate rose to a frenzy. People were leaping up and down in their places and shouting at the tops of their voices in an effort to drown the maddening, bleeding voice that came from the screen. The little sandy-haired woman that had turned, oh, sorry, the little sandy-haired woman had turned bright pink, and her mouth was opening and shutting like that of a landed fish. Even O'Brien's heavy face was flushed. He was sitting very straight in his chair, his powerful chest swelling and quivering, as though he were standing up to the assault of a wave. The dark-haired girl behind Winston had begun crying out, Swine, 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 and suddenly she picked up a heavy Newspeak dictionary and flung it at the screen. It struck Goldstein's nose and bounced off. The voice continued inexorably. In a lucid moment, Winston found that he was shouting with the others and kicking his heel violently against the rung of his chair. The horrible thing about the two minutes hate was not that one was obliged to act a part, but on the contrary, it was that it was impossible to avoid joining in. Within 30 seconds, any pretense was always unnecessary. A hideous ecstasy of fear and vindictiveness, a desire to kill, to torture, to smash faces in with a sledgehammer seemed to flow through the whole group of people like an electric current, turning one, even against one's will, into a grimacing, screaming lunatic. And yet the rage that one felt was an abstract, undirected emotion which could be switched from one object to another like the flame of a blow lamp remember try to keep in mind what's happening in america right now and make these parallels make these parallels with 1949 uh britain or 1949 london and modern day america because these sort of things are still happening again metaphors people metaphors okay we can't this is not these the, the two minutes hate does not happen at your workplace you don't all gather up and start screaming like apes out of, out of out of propaganda film right but but think a little bit deeper what what do you think a big telescreen would represent you don't think it could represent um your computer monitor or your tv screen or your cell phone right you don't think propaganda exists on any other um sort of level any any other sort of um um uh, uh, plane of plane of thought like um I mean, think about uh, think about what the undirected emotion could be switched—an abstract undirected emotion, the rage that these people feel could be switched from one object to another, like the flame of a blow lamp. I mean, think about um, Roe v. Wade, the PACT Act, um, the CRT, uh, the trans the trans people reading books to kids like uh the trans uh the trans swimmer like it's all just you know what i'm saying like this stuff happens all the time it's happening still and the the we may not have a very obvious enemy like goldstein that's being fed to us to be the enemy here right but i mean very clearly these sort of things are still happening and do happen constantly today thus At one moment, Winston's hatred was not turned against Goldstein at all, but on the contrary, against Big Brother, the party, and the thought police. And at such moments, his heart went out to the lonely, derided heretic on the screen, the sole guardian of the truth and sanity in a world of lies. And yet the very next instant, he was at one with the people about him, and all that was said of Goldstein seemed to him to be true. At those moments, his secret loathing of Big Brother changed into adoration, and Big Brother seemed to tower up an invincible, fearless protector standing like a rock against the hordes of Asia. And Goldstein, in spite of his isolation, his helplessness, and the doubt that hung about his very existence, seemed like some sinister enchanter capable by the mere power of his voice of wrecking the structure of civilization. It was even possible, at moments, to switch one's hatred this way or that by a voluntary act. Suddenly, by the sort of violent effort with which someone wrenches one's head away from the pillow in a nightmare, Winston succeeded in transferring his hatred from the face on the screen to the dark-haired girl behind him. Vivid, beautiful hallucinations flashed through his mind. He would flog her to death with a rubber truncheon. He would tie her naked to a stake and shoot her full of arrows like St Sebastian. He would ravish her and cut her throat at the moment of climax. Better than before, moreover, better than before, moreover, he realized why it was that he hated her. He hated her because she was young and pretty and sexless. Because he wanted to go to bed with her and he would never do so. Because round her sweet supple waist, which seemed to ask you to encircle it with your arm, there was only the odious scarlet sash, an aggressive symbol of chastity. The hate rose to its climax. The voice of Goldstein had become an actual sheep's bleat. And for an instant the face changed into that of a sheep then the sheep face melted into the figure of a eurasian soldier who seemed to be advancing huge and terrible his submachine gun roaring and seeming to spring out of the surface of the screen screen so that some people in the front row actually flinched backwards in their seats but in the same moment drawing a deep sigh of relief from everybody that the hostile figure melted into the face of big brother the black haired black mustachioed full of power and mysterious calm and so vast that it was almost filled up the screen melted into the face of big brother black hair black mustache, full of power mysterious oh and so vast that it filled up the screen i did i did fuck that up Nobody heard what Big Brother was saying. Ooh, big stretch, Uh uh-oh. Pause for a moment, oh yeah, oh yeah, that felt good. Nobody heard what Big Brother was saying. It was merely a few words of encouragement, the sort of words that are uttered in the din of battle, not distinguishable individually, but restoring confidence by the fact of being spoken. Then, the face of Big Brother faded away, and instead, the three slogans of the party stood out. In bold capitals, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. But the face of Big Brother seemed to persist for, pers- persist for several seconds on the screen, as though the impact that it had made on everyone's eyeballs was too vivid to wear off immediately. The little sandy haired woman had flung herself forward over the back of the chair in front of her. With a tremulous murmur that sounded like, my savior. She extended her arms toward the screen. Then she buried her face in her hands. It was apparent that she was uttering a prayer. At this moment, the entire group of people broke into a deep, slow, rhythmical chant of "Be, be." B B B B over and over again very slowly with a long pause between the first and second B a heavy murmurous sound somehow curiously savage in the background of which one seemed to hear the stamp of naked feet and the throbbing of tom-toms isn't that interesting because that to me is like very similar to like the marching War the the uh feet padding on the ground that was in the propaganda film they were just watching right of the eurasian army from 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 like marching marching feet very similar very similar for perhaps as much as 30 seconds they kept it up it was a refrain that was often heard in moments of overwhelming emotion Partly, it was sort of a hymn to the wisdom and majesty of Big Brother, but still more, it was an act of self-hypnosis, a deliberate drowning of consciousness by means of rhythmic noise. Winston's entrails seemed to grow cold. In the two minutes hate, he could not help sharing in the general delirium, but this subhuman chanting of Be, 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 be always filled him with horror. Of course he chanted with the rest, it was impossible to do otherwise. To dissemble your feelings, to control your face, to do what everyone else was doing was an instinctive reaction, but there was a space of a couple seconds during which the expression of his eyes might conceivably have betrayed him. And it was exactly at this moment that the significant thing happened, if indeed it did happen. All right, I gotta see how much longer until we get to chapter fucking two because we're already over an hour. God, five more pages. This is gonna be a long episode, I guess. Momentarily, he caught O'Brien's eye. O'Brien had stood up. He had taken off his spectacles and was in the act of resettling them on his nose with his characteristic gesture. But there was a fraction of a second when their eyes met. And for as long as it took to happen, Winston knew, yes, he knew, that O'Brien was thinking the same thing as himself. An unmistakable message had passed. It was as though their two minds had opened and the thoughts were flowing from one into the other with their eyes. I am with you. O'Brien seemed to be saying to him, "I know precisely what you are feeling. I know all about your contempt, your hatred, your disgust, but don't worry, I am on your side." And then the flash of intelligence was gone, and O'Brien's face was as inscrutable as everybody else's. That was all, and he was ready, he was already, oh sorry, that was all, and he was already uncertain whether it had happened. Such such incidents never had any sequel. All that they did was to keep alive in him the belief or hope that others besides himself were the enemies of the party. Perhaps the rumors of vast underground conspiracies were true after all. Perhaps the Brotherhood really existed. Wait, I thought the Brotherhood was the state. Goldstein was hated. He was a commander. Oh, 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 OK. Yeah, I am dumb. I am dumb. OK, so the Brotherhood is Goldstein's uh, a shadowy army, an underground network of conspirators dedicated to the overthrow of the state, the Brotherhood. OK, so when I read that the first time, I thought they were saying the Brotherhood was supposed to be the name of the state. But okay, I got that I got that all mixed up. All mixed up, you don't know what to do. Next thing you turn around, a big brother's on you. All right, sorry, back to the book. It was impossible, in spite of the endless arrests and confessions and executions, to be sure that the brotherhood was not simply a myth. Some days he believed in it, some days not. There was no evidence, only fleeting glimpses that might mean anything or nothing. Snatches of overheard conversation, faint scribbles on lavatory walls. Once, even when two strangers met, a small movement of the hand which had looked as though it might be a symbol of recognition. It was all guesswork. Very likely he had imagined everything. He had gone back. See, again, there's that gaslighting shit. If you gaslight somebody long enough, they'll start questioning everything they actually think. He had gone back to his cubicle without looking at O'Brien again. The idea of following up their momentary contact hardly crossed his mind. It would have been inconceivably dangerous, even if he had known how to set about doing it. For a second? Two seconds? They had had exchanged an equivocal glance, and that was the end of the story. But even that was a memorable event in the locked loneliness that one had to live. Winston roused himself and sat up straighter. He let out a belch, but the gin was rising from his stomach. His eyes refocused on the page. He discovered that while he sat helplessly musing, he had also been writing as though by automatic action, and it was no longer the same cramped, awkward handwriting as before. His pen had slid voluptuously over the smooth paper, printing in large, neat capital letters, down with big brother, down with big brother, down with big brother, over and over again, filling half a page. He could not help feeling a twinge of panic It was absurd, since the writing of those particular words was not more dangerous than the initial act of opening the diary. But for a moment, he was tempted to tear out the spoiled pages and abandon the Enterprise altogether. He did not do so. He did not do so, however, because he knew that it was useless. Whenever he, whether he wrote down, down with Big Brother, or whether he refrained from writing it, made no difference. Whether he went on with the diary, or whether he did not go on with it, made no difference. The thought police would get him just the same. He had committed, would still have committed, even if he had never set pen to paper, the essential crime that contained all others in itself. Thought crime they called it. Thought crime was not a thing that could be concealed forever. You might dodge successfully for a while, even for years, but sooner or later they were bound to get you. It was always at night. The arrests ev- invariably happened at night. The sudden jerk out of sleep, the rough hand shaking your shoulder, the lights glaring in your eyes, the ring of hard faces around the bed. In the vast majority of cases, there was no trial, no report of the arrest. People simply disappeared, always during the night. Your name was removed from the, re- from the registers. Every record of everything you had ever done was wiped out. Your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten. You were abolished, annihilated, Vaporized was the usual word. For a moment, he was seized by a kind of hysteria. He began writing in a hurried, untidy scrawl. They'll shoot me. I don't care. They'll shoot me in the back of the neck. I don't care. Down with Big Brother. They always shoot you in the back of the neck. I don't care. Down with Big Brother. He sat back in his chair, slightly ashamed of himself, and laid down the pen. The next moment he started violently, there was a knocking at the door. Already. He sat as still as a mouse, in the futile hope that whoever it was might go away after a single attempt, but no. The knocking was repeated. The worst thing of all would be to delay. The worst thing of all would be to delay. His heart was thumping like a drum, but his face from long habit was probably expressionless he got up and moved heavily towards the door hell yeah what a what a fucking dope ending really really fire ending for that for god another stretch and yawn oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah blood's pumping now um damn what a good what a good start to this book man um, did a really good job at sort of setting the theme, um, kind of setting the scenery a little bit, and uh, really good, really good looking to Winston. Um, I, I see a lot of room for development for the for the dude. Um, I see a lot of conflict inside him too, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, man, I'm really excited to keep diving into this one um, with you guys. I'm not going to keep this outro uh, terribly long, since the episode's already running a little bit over, but. Um, please feel free to hop in the discord the links right there um, at the bottom of your screen and of course in the in the link tree you can find in the description all the time um, feel free to come discuss with us anything you want and uh, I'd be glad to have you man I'd come introduce yourself we all you know we're playing video games i'll be streaming on twitch um, and of course there's clips on the youtube channel too so if you like my little personality just from the podcast you probably like a little bit more of a uh, unhinged and chaotic version of myself to just plan some old school retro games or uh you know platform fighters i'm a professional smash player you know no big deal i just make money no big deal but yeah holler at your boy man if you made it this long i love you to death i love you through life wow baby see you next week